Well, we've come to the end of a long journey through the book of Revelation. And here we are in Revelation 22, the final imagery given to us concerning this great book, this great revealing from Jesus about things that were to be prophetically happening at that time and into the future. And so we're at the conclusion point now of this of this book. The first five verses of chapter 22 uh, really in many ways belong with verses 9 through 27 of chapter 21. There in that end of that chapter of chapter 21, we were reading about New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem there, a picture of the bride, the wife of the Lamb. These are the people of God. These are the faithful. It is the church that is being described in its perfected state at the end when we are reunited with God, when we are joined with Him in perfect union and able to be with the Lord forever, receiving the eternal blessings that have been promised to His faithful people. So as we begin into chapter 22, keep in mind that that is still what is being described, uh, that the angel is revealing these things about this beautiful city. And last week we saw the dimensions and we saw the description of the beautiful walls and the precious gems. All of these things symbolizing the glory that will exist as we get to be with God in that final state of being united with Him uh, eternally. So we'll look at the first five verses. We'll read just those first, and then uh, when at the appropriate time, we'll read the rest of the chapter. So the first five verses of chapter 22. This is the word of the Lord here. Verse, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And, no, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Great beginning to the picture that's given here. We start off with the imagery of the river of the water of life. And notice the description there, bright as crystal as it flows from the throne of God. It is uh, visualizing for us the uh, living waters, the waters that give eternal life and this great glowing imagery uh, of purity being described. Uh, I've seen a, a number of rivers in, in, in my life. One most notably to me was at the when I was at the Florida College campus because through the midst of that campus is the Hillsborough River. Uh, and at that time, uh, it was probably the antithesis of the description that's being given here. Uh, it's dark, it's muddy, it's ugly, it's uh, green and black, and you go, there's nothing inviting about this water in the slightest. I'm afraid I would catch plague if I got near it. And, and this is to give you the opposite imagery of look at how beautiful this is, like a river you've never seen, uh, just flowing with purity, flowing with clarity, and flowing then with as bright as crystal. And so trying again to, to describe here how beautiful this imagery is of the water 
water of life that is being given to the inhabitants of the new city, to the true and faithful people of God. This was what was promised in a number of places. We know that Jesus spoke of the the fountain of living water. And the Old Testament spoke of it as well. Zechariah 14, verse 8, On that day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them into the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it will continue in summer as in winter. So a picture of the flowing of waters and the giving of life that would be available to all peoples at all times for all seasons. A a water of life that would never dry up. And then Ezekiel is probably the closest connector. Remember that in chapter 21 we notice that Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48 is describing this great imagery of of a massive, massive temple and describing the inhabitants being there in the great glory of God being with His people in fellowship and in worship. The same thing is continuing with this connection to Ezekiel there in Ezekiel 47 verses 1 and 2. Then He brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then He brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate and that faces the the sea and behold the water was trickling out on the south side and then you go on to verses 8 and 9 as I put the the cross reference up there and it describes that the water gets deeper and deeper and first it's ankle deep then it goes to knee deep and waist deep this imagery of this great flowing of life and symbolized by this pure water. And so here is John seeing the same imagery as he is in the city of New Jerusalem. He's looking at the people of God and he's seeing that is right down through the middle of this city is this living water. And so this is describing access. Everybody has access to this since it's right down the center of the city, right down the main street as verse 2 describes it. And so here is the picture that everybody is able to have access to this stream, this river of life, to be able to be with God eternally. Tied closely to that, in verse 2, you'll notice on the side of this river is the tree of life. And that also has great symbolism that comes from the book of Ezekiel as well. Ezekiel, in that same scene in Ezekiel 47, after describing this flowing river, then goes on to say, And as I went back on this, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And then jump down to verse 12, and he says, And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit, uh, fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And so, same imagery that's given here. Notice in verse 2 of Revelation 22, the tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit and it's yielding the fruit each month. Notice the end of verse 2, the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And so, there again, John is connecting to that imagery of Ezekiel to show this great picture of life being given to the people. Now, there's a little bit more to it than that when you talk about the tree of life. If you think about now, when is the last time we saw the actual tree of life? But all 
all the way back to the very beginning of the Holy Scriptures. All the way back there in Genesis 2, we go all the way back there and we are able to see there is the tree of life. Here we see it occur at the very end of the Holy Scriptures. A picture that the tree of life is not giving physical life to the people here, not giving physical life to the faithful, but describing spiritual life to the faithful. And the same thing was being represented there in the Garden of Eden, that when you were had access to the tree of life, it represented that eternal fellowship that you have with God. Remember what happens. Adam and Eve sin. They have to be cast out of the garden. Why? Because you can't be in fellowship with God when you're full of sin. And that's what's described. We have to cast them out of the garden before they reach out their hand to the tree of life because fellowship now has been broken because sin has severed the relationship. We come now to the end of Revelation and now we are seeing the healing of the relationship, the healing of the nations, the restoration of the people to God. Before we have been separated, we have been severed from Him, but now we can access that life. Now we can be with Him eternally and experience the blessings and fellowship that had to be severed from the very beginning that we read of in history. And so it's a great ending to the story of now the tree of life is available. And that's why the imagery uses there in verse 2, yielding its fruit every month. It's always accessible. Twelve kinds of fruit, it's always available. It's on both sides of the river. Everybody has access to it. Here are the true people of God. Here is the new Jerusalem, the bride, experiencing true life. And that is what is being promised to these Christians if they will remain faithful. Verses 3-5 through continue some really amazing imagery. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything cursed. Accursed. Here is a contrast to what happened with Adam and Eve and they sinned and everything becomes a curse. We've got the ground cursed. We're cursed. We're dealing with the curse of sin. That no longer exists. The curse of sin has been removed. Now there is perfection. Now there is everything that is right and holy and good. Here they are dwelling with God. And that's what verse 3 says. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Now there is this fellowship and access, direct access before God. And verse 3 in many ways pictures us as being priests. And that priesthood continues on in verse 4 as we are worshiping Him. And then let the words of verse 4 sink in. They will see His face. And just stop right there. That's going to be great. There is a great promise just settled right in there. Here we are, there's nothing accursed, access to the tree of life, eternal fellowship with God, servants of His, worshiping Him day and night, and they will see His face. There, the full restoration of God's people to God now finally takes place. Now, everything that we have hoped for, all that we have looked for, is now finally realized. Now we can be joined back to God and be in the relationship that we've so desired and so longed for. Verse 4 drives that home. And notice the rest of it when he says there, and His name will be on their foreheads. What a great picture. We saw that earlier in the book. 
Remember, that was a representation of ownership and faithfulness. There was a contrast made back in chapter 13. Those who worshipped the beast had the mark of the beast on their hands and on their foreheads, symbolizing they worshipped the world, they worshipped paganism, they worshipped those false ways. But those who were true to God and faithful to the Lamb, they had a mark on their foreheads, and chapter 14 showed them being victorious with the Lamb. And so this is the symbol of faithfulness. Here are the true faithful of God. They are owned by God, possessed by God, and seeing God face to face, which is exactly what God promised at the very beginning of this book, as we saw in the seven churches of Asia, one of the points that was made there, Revelation 13, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This picture of you are with God, you are in the presence of God, you are in His holy place dwelling with Him eternally. You will never leave, you are never separated, you are His. And so these verses are just trying to round out the picture of the new Jerusalem, the bride, how glorious, how fantastic it will be, that great reward that will be given to us when we are allowed to enter and receive eternal life, what it will be like to be with God. I will remind us again, as we talked about last week and I think the week before, when you read chapter 21 and this end of chapter 22, this is not talking about geography. This is not talking about location, that there is this place somewhere where there are streets of gold and there is a river running down the middle and there are these 1,500 mile high walls all over the place. It is symbolizing relationship. It is symbolizing what it will truly be like to be with God eternally using physical images to try to conjure up how glorious, how great, how majestic it is to finally be where we need to be. And so that's how this picture then concludes. Verse 5, And night will be no more. A promise that was made from Isaiah as well. That the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall the moon give your light, but the Lord will give your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 60, verses 19 through 20. Same imagery. Here is the fulfillment. There's no dark. There is no night. It is all glory. It is just simply awesome to get to be in a relationship fully receiving the blessings of God. Notice the end of verse 5 as well. Awesome picture here. Again, no need for light or or lamp or sun. Notice what it says at the end of verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. Now that's a neat reminder because we've talked a lot in chapter 20 about who is reigning. 
Christ is reigning. We've seen that. We've seen this thousand year reign of Christ as He is subjugating the nations. He is ruling over all the peoples. He is putting down things that are evil. He's wiped out the nations. He has cast Satan into the lake of fire. We've seen Him cast all who are not written in the book of life. They are also cast in the lake of fire. And then there is this reminder. It's not just simply that Christ is reigning, but that we are reigning with the Lord. Daniel prophesied of that. A phrase that we can easily jump over, but remember Daniel 7.27 in the imagery of those four great beasts. We saw that fourth terrifying beast. We worked on that chapter when we were in Revelation 13. We saw that fourth terrifying beast that's going to persecute, cause all kinds of problems, but that fourth beast would be destroyed, describing that Roman Empire and its fall. But Daniel 7.27 then would say, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. We're part of that rule. We're part of that glory. It's not just simply they're going to serve Him. They're going to serve us. A picture of we are joined with Christ. We are receiving the great blessings. And as a contrast of you are suffering now, you are being sacrificed for the cause of Christ now, you're being slain for the cause of Christ now, you are going through all of this persecution that we've read through the book that these Christians would experience, but you will reign in the end. Do Do not look for life now. Do not look to reign now. Because if you do, you will then sacrifice the reign and the life to come. Sacrifice your life now for Christ. And the life and the reigning will come then. And so that is what is being described. And that's what Revelation reminds us as well. Remember, he wrote that as well. Jesus said it in Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. A great promise that exaltation will come then. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord now. Then the exaltation will begin. That's when it is. But if we exalt ourselves now, we will be humiliated on that day of judgment. And that's how then those first five verses wrap up. Now I don't want to say the symbolism ends because there's still some symbolism and still some imagery that is given here. But verse 5 is a critical break to the book because now it is simply the wrap-up, the epilogue, the conclusion to the story now. Now we have the angel coming back in in verse 6 and now is going to tie all these things together. You have seen the timeline. You have seen the visions. You have seen the prophecies. You've seen how it is all going to unfold. And now there are some final instructions, some final words of encouragement to John and the readers about the things that are going to happen. Notice verse 6. And we'll read verse 6 through verse 21 now. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. 
And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let those who hear say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen is right. Here is a great conclusion as he now wraps this book up for us. And he reminds us, he sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. What's fascinating about that statement is that is a just about a direct quotation to the very first verse of the book. It is reminding us about the symbolism and the time frame of this book. Just as Revelation 1.1 told us that an angel had symbolized or signified these things and shown it, Things that must soon take place. We now get to the very end of the book and the angel says the exact same thing. These things must soon take place. And then verse 7 compounds that when we have Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming soon. And this is where I believe nearly every interpretation falls apart. Because most interpretation, interpretations fail to deal with this verse, verse 6, that says these things must soon take place. Everybody seems to be feel comfortable at the beginning of the book where it says things must soon take place. But then you have interpretations that project everything out to the end and go, well, wait a minute, I thought you said these things must soon take place. And I think this is really important because somehow these time markers must be dealt with. We cannot have the alternative that says, well... To the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. And so to God, it's going to seem really fast, but to us, it's just going to be forever and ever and ever. It's going to be a really, really long time. Remember what we did 35 lessons ago. God must be able to know how to talk to His people. When God communicates to humans and says, it's going to be soon... It means it's going to be soon. And we cannot turn around and go, well, now let's adjust for that. Let's help God out. Or John thought it was going to be soon, but it really ended up not to be soon. But as you know, as we've gone through the book, he has talked about things that haven't happened yet. We looked at the end of chapter 20. What did we see? We see the the, the resurrection of the dead. We have seen the great white throne scene. We have seen everybody whose names being written in the book. We have seen Satan cast into the lake of fire. We've seen those who have not been written in the book. They're cast into the lake of fire. How do we reconcile these things? 
And I submit to you, just as verse 6 points out in verse 7 gives us that very answer, describing when Jesus saying, I am coming soon, is that what is happening here is that the coming of Christ is a picture of a sequence of events that must happen. And we could go like to Matthew 24 and see that here is the picture of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and that imagery there in Matthew 24 describes it as the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, coming with power. Even Jesus Himself uttering those very words to Caiaphas. This is a picture then of these events are going to happen. Here is the sequence of events of the Lord coming and He's going to bring these judgments and it first must begin soon. It must happen right away. And I submit to you all the other interpretations, this is where there is a failure. In typical futurist, premillennialist view says, well, from chapter 4 to chapter 21, none of that's happened yet. That's looking out to a rapture and it's all the end of time. Here's the problem then. Nothing that you read about in that book happened soon. All of it was put out to the very end. And that doesn't work. I also submit to you that as much as that's been a popular view among our brethren to see that this book is about the Roman Empire, that that interpretation also falls apart because of these words. This must happen soon. That would happen outside the generation of the people who read this book. It would happen at hundreds of years after these words were written. The only way to make this work is to show that this is the effect of what would happen. In that very year, within a year or two, Christ was going to come against the Jewish nation as pictured from chapter 6 through chapter 11 as God is going to put under His feet this worldly nation. And what will happen after that? Christ will come against yet another nation, the worldly Roman Empire. And what do we see after that? The chaos of the nations, the calamity that happens when the Roman Empire falls and they also will be judged. And who's going to be judged after that? Satan's going to be judged after that. And what will happen after that, then the faithful people of God will enter into that resting place. But when is that all going to start? It wasn't going to start hundreds of years or thousands of years. It was going to start soon, right then. And that's what the book of Revelation is saying. To give an interpretation to the book that has an answer hundreds or thousands of years outside doesn't fit coming soon. And I'll remind you what I did at the chapter 1. If I were to tell you that so-and-so is coming soon, how long before it's no longer soon to you? A year? Two years? At what point do you go, that's not soon anymore? We observed in our study of the book, this is likely written around 69 AD, if I understand chapter 17 correctly, and then that would put these events beginning within one year. And what the book of Revelation is saying is here is Christ coming in judgment and here's how it's going to go. It's going to happen right now. It's coming soon. And then what will happen after that? Here's the next one. What will happen after that? The next one. And so it just gave us the domino effect. First Jerusalem must fall. Rome must fall. Satan must fall. These events are going to happen and it all begins right away. I don't know how else to deal with the language. Otherwise, we are simply 
shooing away the very clear words of it must happen soon and shooing away the words of verse 7 Jesus himself I am coming soon now we've talked about when we've gone through Revelation that doesn't mean second coming it means coming in judgment and now he's already shown us as the book comes to a conclusion now here are the judgments that are going to unfold Verse 7 then, words of encouragement, words calling for faithfulness yet one more time. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Obey what you have been told. They are in the face of persecution. They have been told it's going to get worse. It's been told to them that they are going to suffer and die if they are faithful to the Lamb. But here is God saying, stay faithful. Keep to the words of the book. I know what you are about to suffer. I know the tribulation that you will be enduring. Stay faithful. Do not lose heart. Do not give up your faith. Verses 8 and 9. We saw this a couple chapters ago. John does it again. Here is John at the conclusion of all of this in the great amazement, I think in the great glory and wonder of this prophecy, the amazing words of this book. He falls out the feet of the angel angel begins to worship. I think the same point is being made here as we observed a couple of chapters ago when John fell down at the feet of the angel there. This is not intended to be an embarrassment to John, but to remind the readers, you worship no one but God alone. You worship no one. Do not worship the beast. Do not believe that you are worshiping God through the beast or through the paganism or through the idolatry or through Caesar worship. You only worship God. And here is the imagery as John falls down to the angel, and that's not even correct. Do not even worship an angel. You worship God. You worship none other. And so here is that reminder to the reader. Do not fall for the lies of that false prophet. Worship God alone. Verse 10. Notice the words there. The angel says there, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. That's another important time marker, especially because that contrasts what we studied in Daniel chapter 12. Remember how the end of Daniel 12 went. As Daniel receives message about the shattering of the power of the holy people, about the destruction of Jerusalem there in Daniel 9, the vision of the 70 weeks, he also sees in that vision in chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, this Roman Empire, this holy, uh, horrible, awful beast uh, in every way that is going to destroy the people of God. He comes to the end of that prophecy and he's asking, when are these things going to happen? The message the angel gives to Daniel is, seal up the book until the time of the end. The point was, it wasn't going to happen soon. Seal up the book to the time of the end. In fact, they were told there it's going to be a time, times, and half a time. It's still going to be a duration of time before these things are fulfilled. Note the contrast Do not seal up the words of the book. It is not going to be hundreds of years. It's not going to be thousands of years. These things are going to unfold right away. And that's what he says at the end of verse 10. The time is near. One more time to drive it home to us. He's trying to be clear. These events are happening 
right there at that very moment. It's about to unfold. It is not way off into the future. It is not even excuse me, hundreds of years away. It is something that's going to take place immediately. And so verse 10, don't seal up the words of this prophecy in the book because it is time for these events to unfold. Verse 11 fits right in, but verse 11 certainly sounds strange, doesn't it? Let the evil do or keep doing evil. What? <laughs> You're thinking, wait a minute, shouldn't this say, let the evil repent and come back to God before it's too late? Well, that's kind of the idea of what's being said here. This parallels exactly what's in Daniel 12 as well. Over in Daniel 12, after saying, seal up the book until the time of the end, then Daniel's told this, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And I think the meaning of Daniel 12.10 is the exact same meaning of Revelation 22 verse 11. Their end has determined, it has been prophesied, this is how these events are going to unfold. Keep preaching the Word of God, but understand something. The wicked are going to keep acting wickedly. And the righteous will continue to act righteously. Even in the face of such amazing imagery, even in the face of being told that they will suffer and lose at the end, that their part will not be with God, that they'll be cast in the lake of fire, they will still continue to act wickedly. Daniel was told that, and now John is told the exact same thing. And I think that is the point that's being made. Uh, There is one uh, method of interpretation of the book of Revelation that's called uh, post-millennialism. And one of the thrusts of that is to suggest that the world is going to get better and better until Christ returns. It's going to become more, more, more righteous and things will finally kind of reach a golden age and once everybody comes to the Lord, then our Lord will return. And I submit to you this verse defies that in every way. This says the wicked are going to keep doing wicked. Even in the face of such glorious words, they're going to continue to be wicked. And in the face of these words, the righteous will still be righteous. So it's almost, I think, a message of encouragement. You preach this great message, but understand something. The wicked are going to still be wicked. There are many who will not understand, as Daniel used in the wording there of chapter 12, verse 10. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise will understand. Those who have spiritual perception, those who have their eyes on eternity, they will understand what's behind this book. But those whose minds are darkened by the God of this world, they are not going to understand the gravity of what is being prophesied in this book. Verse 12. Another reminder. Christ is coming and He will repay. That's good news to the faithful. That's bad news to the unfaithful. The Christ is going to come. He brings recompense in His hand. He will repay according to our deeds. Everything that we have done, He is the one who will do it. That is excellent news to be repaid for serving the Lord, being faithful unto death. Here is Christ saying, I know what you have done, and I will be with you for that, and you'll be repaid. But to reject the Lord, here's Christ saying, and for that there will be recompense. There will be repayment if we choose to be unfaithful to the Lamb.
In verse 13, the imagery, the, again the description of Christ, I'll leave that because we went over that in chapters 2 and 3 as Christ describes Himself as the sum of all things, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, bringing in verse 14 this great blessing. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And He explains what's going to happen for them. They will have the right to the tree of life. That's what's been pictured for us in the first five verses. And they're going to enter the city by the gates. Remember, who can enter the city of God? Who can participate in these great blessings? Who will receive the eternal reward? Only the faithful, only the righteous, those who've washed their robes. Do you remember where we saw that washing of the robe imagery? It's been a while, but it's back there in chapter 7 and verse 14 where we see the faithful of God, they are slain for the cause of Christ. Remember the imagery meant that they would follow Jesus to their death just as Jesus died for us. That is the picture. It was not merely a symbol of, well, they're going to be baptized. The symbol was far deeper than that. They were going to forfeit their lives to follow the Lamb. That's what it meant to wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And so here is that reminder coming in one more time. Who are the faithful? They follow the Lamb even to the point of death. They give their lives no matter what the cost. They are the ones who will eat of the tree of life. They are the ones who are in the true city of God. As for everybody else, verse 15, what a great picture. Call them dogs. I like it. Very good. That's common imagery. Uh, Not only in the Scriptures, but even in ancient times. Back in those days, dogs were not cuddly nor clean. They were unclean, filthy, dirty, mangy mutts. To be called a dog was an insult. And even like in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, it was used to speak of those who stand in rebellion to God. And so that's the imagery that's used there. Used in Philippians 3 as well. That's the picture here is that here are the ones who are the outside. These are the ones who are unfaithful who stand in rebellion then to God. Verse 16, he says there, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. We've seen that imagery again in the seven churches of Asia, so we won't go into that again, but as a reminder, by his title, he is faithful to his word. Everything that you have read about in this book will most certainly happen. Imagine again, the book of Revelation, and that's good news, bad news. Everything that's been prophesied will certainly come. Well, the bad news to that is that just told the Christians they were going to die. But the good news to that was they were going to live, though they died. There would be life given to them, and they will reign with the Lamb forever and ever. Verse 17, what a great picture now. The Spirit says come. Here is God speaking to the world through His Holy Word. Why don't you come? Look at the great tree of life. Look at the river of the water of life. Look at this great new Jerusalem, this great city of God that you can participate in. Look at the relationship that you will have. Here is God through His Spirit in the Word saying come. And not only them, the bride says come. I do not understand why some translations, including the one I'm using tonight, the ESV, capitalizes bride. 
The bride is not a reference to deity in any way. We have identified the bride back in chapter 19. These are the faithful of God. The bride of the Lamb is who is in view. This is the holy people of God. Even they are calling to people and saying, Come. So verse 17, God is calling people to come. We are calling people to come. And verse 17 is beautiful when it says, Let the one who is thirsty come. There's only one requirement here. But to be thirsty for the ways of God. To want to seek the Lord. To want to hear His voice. To want to come after Him and serve Him. There's only one requirement here. Are you thirsty for the ways of God? Are you thirsty for His Word? Are you thirsty to be with the Lord? Are you thirsty for eternal life? If you are, then the message is come. The message is The door is open. The gates are wide open. The righteous can enter in. It is time for you to come. What a great conclusion to the book is that true life and eternal blessings are still available. It's not too late. The promises that have been given in this book and the inheritance that is to be given to the faithful, it is still available to the thirsty. Will you not come? And that is what a great promise and that must be our message. We must be going out and we must be the fulfillment of that imagery going into the world and saying, won't you come to the Lamb? Won't you come to the rivers of living water? Won't you come to the tree of life? Won't you come into this glorious relationship with God? One final warning. Verse 18 and 19. That one's probably well known. There's a few things in this book that are well known, like 666 and things like that, and this is probably one of the final well-known things of this book. Whoever adds to this prophecy, God is going to add to them the plagues of this book. Whoever takes away from this prophecy, God is going to take away their share in the tree of life and their share in the holy city. What a key message. Don't change the message of the book. Don't tweak it. Don't alter it. Don't mess it up. Don't pervert it. Don't ruin it. Because if you do, your share in the tree of life is going to be taken away. You are going to suffer for doing such a thing. Um, After studying this book, and as you probably know, all the misinformation that is out there about this book, all the false teachings that exist about this book, all the distortion and twisted messages, all the attempts to make money off this book, write books about this book so they can be rich and famous, to get on TV shows so that they can be powerful and have notoriety. I'm afraid these words are going to affect a lot of people. Those who have distorted this message, those who have ruined this book, who have turned it into a book of fear, who have turned it into a book of crazy messages and wonders of things in the future that no one can know unless you just buy their book or watch their show. A grave warning. Don't mess with this book. Do not take it to, do not add to it. Do not take away from it. And we know that's true concerning all of God's Word. The Apostle Peter wrote the exact same thing when he said, there are some things in them, speaking of the Scriptures, that, especially concerning what Paul wrote, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist 
to their own destruction. The end result is the same as they do the other Scriptures. What a danger to come into the Word of God and twist it and manipulate it for their own gain instead of accepting, here's what it says, and I will take it at its word and I will obey it. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. One more reminder to us, it's soon, it's soon, telling us that when this book was written to that first century audience, the events were going to unfold at that time, right before their eyes. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And as I believe that's just as appropriate ending as any. May the Lord Jesus be with us all. I hope this study has been helpful. I hope I hope it has cleared so much of the misinformation that's out there. I hope it has given you greater confidence about this book. I hope it is not, no longer a book that you look at and go, I just don't know about that thing. And you just go read something else because it is too hard or, or too challenging. I hope now that you have a good feel of the book and though we may not uh, at all, and I myself included, we may not be experts of everything that's in here. I hope we have a good grasp now of this is the message of God's Word. This is the intention to show Christ and His victory over all the pieces of evil that are out there as He would subjugate the nations and He would bring victory to the faithful of God. We invite you to be among the faithful as well, to come to Jesus this very evening, that you will decide to repent of your sins, turning away from your evil ways and selfish desires and serving the Lord with all of your heart and beginning that relationship with Him by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That is how your hope begins and that's how your name will be written in the book of life is beginning that relationship through immersion in water, submitting to Him with all of your heart and remaining faithful to Him even to the point of death. The hope of eternal life awaits you as well. The Spirit says come. The Bride says come. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?